Coming to get you, Barbara. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Holmes Movies Podcast. My name is Anders Holmes, and I'm joined over Zoom with my older brother, Adam. Hello. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about our top 10 favorite films of the 1960s. Uh, we're still carrying on with our sort of top, tape, uh, top 10 favorites. Sorry, I slowed my words there for a second. Uh Top favorite, uh, top favorite films. Oh, of- you just having a fucking disaster, aren't you? <laughs> Jesus Christ! I've been up since six. <laughs> I've been, I've been working on a short film the last couple of days, and I've been up since like six both days. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. it, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, 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 I'm going to power through this. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm maybe slurring my words, but yeah, that's nothing new from no different yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so anyway um, yeah so we're carrying on with our uh, top uh 10 favorite films of each decade we started with the 2010s and we're sort of working our way down to the 1920s because i doubt we've seen 10 films from the 1910s and if we have who really wants to hear us talk about them yeah i don't think anyone you know wants I mean? to listen to us an hour talking about li- live and pure yeah exactly exactly we're going to talk about live and pure and like what uh journey to the moon no that's earlier than that that's gonna be very good anyway we're not in the 1910s thankfully we're in the 1960s which is a decade full of stuff um it's a lot of of stuff happened in the 1960s well yes there's a lot of um events socially Um, and politically socially and politically and um and well and and like yeah there's there's a big war there's a big there's a lot of assassinations. There's, uh, you know, space, the moon. Um, By the end of the decade, the... we'll get to the moon. Except I am not alive to see it. Um, that's a. I don't know. I, there's a very high pitch John Kennedy you're doing there. Um, it sounds. Uh, it oh sounds my a God. little bit. <laughs> no, exactly. That's that's better. It sounds like John Kennedy was briefly gone to become a newsreel reader from the 1940s. But we know we. Um, yeah, we make these top 10 lists not because they're easy, but because they're hard. I mean, I think the 1970s was easy because it was like, oh, I love this movie. Oh, I love this movie. Oh, I love this movie. There's so many movies from the 1970s, as people who have listened to it know that, that there was a lot of films in there that I I love and talked about on, you know, on a very, you know, long and passionate length. Um, but here it was um it was hard. I mean, some I mean, there's a lot of films I really, I really like, but like, I mean. But there's the, it was hard to find films that I really feel like, you know, I feel really like, because there's a lot of films that are good, but I don't find them like great. Like Guns of the Navarone, I nearly put on the list, but that's a good film. But I don't know if it's that, that's my, yeah. my, my favorite film of the 1960s. You know what? That's really, uh, firstly, I'm, I'm really pleased you said that because I was looking at my list and I was like, I should put a bunch of French new wave films on here. I should put a bunch of Italian like new wave films on, or I don't know what, whatever the Italian, like Philly, a bunch of realism, whatever. No, that's earlier, uh, but like, who cares anyway about this stuff? We're not film students. Um, we, um, and, and like, there are other sort of cool movies that are always on top 10 lists from, or like on, on people's lists of the sixties that, I was like, I just don't love them enough. You know, like I don't have um, the same like passion for those films. So this, my list is kind of a bit schizophrenic because it's a mix of some like great kind of like, this is a good movie and other films that I've picked up because I really love them and really respond to them. But it's not to say that the 60s aren't a very rich decade because they are. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many like really, really terrific films 
Um, and you I can had really a hard time. feel Hollywood was changing by the end of the decade, like in the last sort of three years of the decade, yeah. Hollywood was, you know, as we talked about in the 70s episode, you know, it kind of began with Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider. Right. And then it's like, you look at Bonnie, you look at the Wild Bunch, um, for example, and you compare that to westerns that came out in the 19 like the early 60s i mean it's just or, or you look you know look almost any hollywood films it's such a it's such a shift um but it's it is um you know there is a lot that um there's a lot that's going on you know around the world in the 60s in terms of filmmaking too and I, i'm slightly disappointed i don't have more non uh english language films on my list but there you go like it is what it is shall we get into it yeah, let's get into it. I started last time, so I uh, you can go first. All right. Well, um, I guess like it's one of my favorite movies of its type. It's an absolutely, I think, you know, emblematic film of the 1960s. Um, it is 1963's James Bond outing from Russia with Love. Um, from Russia which... with Love. Ugh. I fly to you. Oh my god! You know what's really depressing? In about two weeks, we're going to be driving for hours and hours and hours every day on a road trip, and yeah. I think I'm going to kill you and bury you in the desert. If the disgusting keep, if brothers this are on, are going to go on a road trip. We're not the disgusting. That is not no, for anyone who's been watching Succession. We're waiting the, to. We've been waiting also, to. Throw anyone that. who knows, anyone who knows us, knows that the last thing anyone would call us is the disgusting brothers. We're definitely the something brothers, but disgusting is not the word. Um, I'm glad I can make that reference now that you've caught up with Succession. Yeah, definitely irrelevant brothers. I don't know. Uh, anyway, from Russia with Love is a great Bond film. It's the best Bond film. It's as we've discovered and doing Bond backwards. Um, it's um, you know what's what I mean. Come on, everyone knows it's Connery at his most silky and panther-like. It's got all the uh, stuff that we love to see. It's got the briefcase. It's got you know um, the, the train stuff, uh, white wine with fish. You know, but it but it is um, it's a different Bond film because it's slightly more in the vein of your classic kind of Eric Ambler style kind of interwar thriller. Like it's not got as much um razzmatazz of like goldfinger which comes out the next year with like car chases and stuff like or thunderball with all the scuba stuff it's like you know he has to use his wits mostly it's got a lot of um you know it's it's kind of an urban film in that you know it's mostly set in like you know cities and they you know and on trains and um there's not a lot of like really glamorous kind of um beach locations and things so um i just really like it for that because it it does feel as as ridiculous as it is but be, for being a bond film it does also feel a bit more down to earth yeah it feels very grounded it's a, and it's fucking it's a cool fucking movie it's like, a very it's cool a film really cool movie i mean they could have gone bigger after dr no but i guess they didn't exactly have the money yet and then goldfinger was like a huge success and then they were able to like up their stakes and up their sets with thunderbowl and you only live twice, and then which are ridiculous movies. I mean, which and they're yeah. fun, but this film is much better off for not having any of that crap. So I was yeah. kind of on the fence about whether I should pick this or Goldfinger, but at the end of the day, I just prefer From Russia with Love. I just think it's um, it's like it's really telling that when they rebooted the franchise in two thousand and six, 
whenever yeah. it was Casino Royale came yeah, out. Yeah, 2006. You know, they really kind of went back to a formula that you hadn't really seen since early Connery. They just went back to basics. That's what they did. I mean, Dying of the Day took them to like a weird early 2000s, like techno fever dream sort of period. And we were all like, we don't like that. So they went back. They did what I mean, that's what they did with Timothy Dalton when Roger Moore was going nuts as well. They went back to the books, they went back to the basics and injected a little bit of the Bourne films a little bit into the DNA of James Bond. But yeah, they sort of they did go and, back. And they 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 picked up on Connery, I think, and on yeah. this and on this kind of film. And it's interesting actually, this is the only film that has a cameo from Ian Fleming. Well, I think he died in 1964 as well. So he wasn't he didn't have very yeah, long he to only, he's, he's yeah, he died in, He died before Goldfinger, yeah. Oh right, okay. Yeah. So he's he's briefly in from Russia Love. Of course another person who died um who's kind of relevant to From Russia with Love is John F. Kennedy because he had picked from Russia with Love as one of his books of the year or something. Um, in well, he watched 19... this movie before he went on a plane to Dallas, I think. No, he didn't. Is that true? Like the day before? According to IMDb, that he might have watched that. According film. to IMDb, it's just some idiot on IMDb who's trying to make a name for it. No, I, I don't. I don't believe. I mean, that maybe, maybe he did. I mean, that would be. I mean, it's got nothing to do with assassinations, I guess, except it does have a sniper rifle in it. But. Um, I don't know. In any case, it's kind of interesting that there's in this, you know, in the 60s, you've got this like womanizing president who's really into sending people into space. Like, so he's some com- he's some combination of Bond and Blofeld that decides he really likes the Bond books and then gets killed. Yeah. Um, and well, then who, who's the actor that plays Karen Bay? Pedro Armendariz. Well, he died as well. He was. This was his last film. Yes, this was his last. Well, yeah, and he died. It's very sad because he was very sick, and then he um he took his own life, um which is really sad. Uh, oh, and, um, but he's I a wonderful. Yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful actor. Um, and he's really really good in this. This is maybe his, or arguably his most famous role outside of the John Ford movies. Anyway, we're doing what we said we wouldn't do and spending ages talking about films. So just. You know, just to say, from Russia with Love is great fun. It's got all the iconic um, Bond stuff. If you haven't seen it in a while, go back and rewatch it and think of it as a piece of, you know, this is the, you know, the sixties. In part, you know, in popular cinema in the sixties was about making like travel, location filming, sex, and stuff like that mainstream. You know, uh, characters openly and lustfully being themselves on screen, with whether it's you know gambling or or drinking martinis or like looking down people's tops and being creepy or whatever it's like the 60s kind of really starts to get more um self-consciously and self-confidently adult uh or possibly yeah. not <laughs> just like just but 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 it, less hidebound by censorship and i feel like the bond movies are a great kind of barometer of that uh yeah. so in that sense i think it's also a worthy entrance uh what is that your number 10 sir so my number 10 is uh, it's Western, and it's uh, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. Nice! Well, um, I'm glad you put that on because it didn't quite make my list, which I know is insane because it's one of my favourite movies, but I didn't want to put it on too many Westerns. Um, I, I nearly put, like, four Westerns in my list. Right, right. That's the, it's, it's, it's not a great decade for Westerns, but what, de- what, what, what Westerns get made in the 60s are really, really good, uh, or some of them are really, really good. Um, and I just thought, oh gosh, I can't like, I can't do what I'm gonna do in the fifties, which is to basically only do westerns. So yeah, I'm glad this yeah. is on there. I love the Wild Bunch. 
Me too. It's Sam Peckinpah's masterpiece. I like a lot of his films, but I just I, I just really like this film. I just think it's such yeah. a romantic, but like also a bit of a misanthrope kind of movie because it's like a film that's like romanticizing okay, yeah. the West, but then it's also showing like the really decrepit and dirty and violent side of it as well. I mean, you know, it's like what Rich Hall said in that BBC documentary about the about the Western genre. It's like John Ford was like, you know, he started the Western genre and then while and then Sam Peckinpah kind of just took it further and he sort of was the successor and taking it into more sort of, you know, in that kind of revisionist period and taking it into more violent and you know, sort of yeah. less like romanticized looks and, you know, less about good versus evil and something that was a little bit, you know, gray. And um, I guess one could say that Arthur Penn's The Left-Handed Gun or even... Uh, Ford, Ford does that with uh, the, one of the the last films that he makes in this decade, which is The the Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, which has yeah. a kind of a peck and pie-ish vibe. Um, yeah. But what's really interesting about Peckinpah, you know, is that he's making these films that are very elegiac and very kind of, you know, lamenting the passing of an era. And it's almost like they're lamenting the fact that the Western as a genre is also kind of dying out or becoming less, you know, less popular than it used to be. And so there's this kind of double yeah. thing going on in his films where these characters are kind of looking back very wistfully. And I, I love that, you know, in The Wild Bunch, you have people like William Holden and Ben Johnson and Ernest Borgnine, who are recognizable from the 40s and 50s, who are now old and fat and and a bit sort of whiskery, and they're just sort of, you know, they're trying to figure out their place in the world and 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 failing, you know, yeah, catastrophically. And it I love the analysis that I think um Christopher Frayling has of this film where he likens it to um the treasure of the Sierra Madre, you know, at the with the laughter at the end of the film and the sort of location and the sort of the a lot of the tone of it is very similar. And I yeah, I love the 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 I love thinking of those two films as as companion pieces. Um yeah, this, I mean, The Wild Bunch is terrific. It should be on anyone's list. It would be on my list. It's just, you know, you've got to try and figure these things out the best you can. I remember, like, it was the first time, I mean, you had seen it before I did, and I just remember just being completely just blown away by it. Just, not just, like, the fact, not just because of the violence or anything like that, just because of the style of it and the very sort of, like, in-your-face and flash-cutting. It's like a very different kind of Western from John Ford's movies and well it's also it's a different kind of film i mean it's, yeah, it's a different it kind is. of way of shooting like whether you're shooting a gangster film or a thriller or an action movie or a war movie the editing that sam peckinpah introduces in the wild bunch is completely revolutionary yeah it very I mean, sort of could, french you new could way compare it to arthur penn but it's 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 on a new level it's a different you know it, it's completely uh changed the game mm. I mean, like that big gunfight at the end of the movie is just peak cinema. <laughs> That's just that is just an amazing piece of filmmaking. That whole just that whole yeah. gunfight was amazing. Well, it's you know this is also the decade where the spaghetti westerns come into their own as well, and they have a yeah, different approach. You know, where it's more like sweeping and operatic, and here it's this. Well, it's it's almost dare I say, Michael Bay machine gun editing, except with a mo lot more artistry. Um, but it's kind of maybe yeah, sets Yeah, but at the... least you get a sense of, like, place and geography and characters. And I mean, I mean, I mean, I... I'm sort of like a bit of a Michael Bay apologist, but I sort of feel like he could just really 
go easy on the editing now and again. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't like Michael Bay, so I'm not going to... Um, but I'm just saying, you know, this has... Um, you know, this is the beginnings of a kind of new way of shooting action sequences that will become more ordinary, is what I'm saying. But yeah, um, it definitely yeah, it's, it's, it carries on into the 70s very well. Yeah, no, but it, and it's just a very moving film, as you say, very, very beautifully done, very beautifully acted. I um, I do, I do love it, and I'm very, very glad it's on the list. Um, and I hope people will remember to 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 check it out. Um, number nine, should we do number nine? Yeah, your number nine. What's your number nine? Uh, my number nine is The Lion in Winter, um, the um, film about Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine kind of figuring out their relationship and, uh, you know, also vying for um, political influence along with their sons. Um, I have it on whom... Blu-ray, but I haven't watched it yet. Oh, you idiot. It, you need... It's a great movie. Mm. Um, it's really, um, it, it's it's really, really terrific. Um it's um it's it's an absolute sort of powerhouse cast as well because you've got your uh, your Peter O'Toole and uh, Catherine Hepburn as Henry and Eleanor, but then you've also got Anthony Hopkins as Richard the Lionheart, or who will become Richard the Lionheart, and um uh, and Tim- young Timothy Dalton is in it, um and um yeah, it's got you know really just really meaty cast, and what I love about it is it's basically like medieval succession, um with you know, uh, it's like you know three 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 children vying against each other uh, with two you know parents who are kind of you know playing them off. It, it's 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 beautifully done. But I think the main thing about it is the kind of miraculous and and unexpected chemistry between Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. And what's there's there's a couple of things that are interesting about that. Number one, um, you know this is an unusual pairing in Hollywood where you have a leading lady who's older than the leading man. You don't normally see that. Yeah, it's the um, other round. But what's great is also it's historically accurate because she was older than Henry II in real life. Um, so there is a real sort of, the, the, there's there's a truth in that casting as well. And I just, it it, it is, it's, I think some of Peter O'Toole's best acting um, his most kind of like magnificent, like big kind of like, almost sort of um i mean he he he, go, he almost goes brian blessed at some parts but he he reigns it in um but um but no he's it, it's and and she is just like this this warm viper who's also just you know just so it she plays it with such intelligence and eleanor of aquitaine was an immensely sort of intelligent and well-read and 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 sophisticated um and savvy woman and so um yeah there's 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 a lot of like historical truth in it but there's also it's just also great like theater um yeah and so so, yeah really encourage you to watch it and everyone listening um it's a wonderful it's a wonderful film and it's a christmas film because it takes place to ask if it was set around christmas because i remember you bringing it up during the christmas episode that we did yeah so yeah if you want to watch a good like medieval film it's it's not like you know swords and like kind of medieval film it's 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 yeah. talky but it's it's good it's really really good yeah. um i can imagine the, i can imagine the boar on the floor moment in succession taking place in something like that movie yeah well i think i think there is a boar at some point i can't remember but, but they probably bore in the film in any case um it's really really um well done um and um and no and then they never they never allow it to run away with itself it's always it's it's 
played just super tight and i yeah, yeah love it uh what's your number nine so my number nine is a film from 1967 and it's norman jewison's film in the heat of the night Ooh, good choice yeah um yeah there's a lot of things to say about this film uh one of which is uh rod steiger won an oscar for this film and he is very good even though he does chew every piece of scenery of that movie Mm. but he does it very well but i mean one can be said the real star of the show is sydney poitier I was going to say Warren Oates. But oh, yeah, Warren know. Oates as well. I mean, Warren I love, Oates I love, great. How, I love how you've got a 100% Warren Oates record so far. Like, you both, Warren Oates is in both your entries. Yeah, <laughs> so, pretty much. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. Uh, no. Um, yeah, this is Poitier's iconic film, isn't it? Um, I mean, he'd already won an Oscar for Lilies of the Field, I believe, yeah. a few years <laughs> Hollywood weren't going to give Hollywood weren't going to give the same black guy two Oscars. There's no fucking way. No, no, no. <laughs> they had already sort of. They'd already. Okay, we've done our bit. Let's let's move yeah, on. Yeah, we'll give it to Steiger. Yeah, he deserves. But yeah, it. I mean, I think like I mean, I knew about the. I knew like the gist of the film before watching it, but like I knew the film was about racism. I knew that they cut. They didn't quite shoot in the south. They shot like a bit above yeah. the Mason Dixon line because they didn't want Sidney Poitier to get lynched, or just. They, yeah, I mean that's that's the thing about you know this film was made at a time when the, the, the political violence and, and, and racial violence was still just yeah. the norm. And, and then even though you'd had Brown be bored and there was, you know, all the civil rights legislation had come in at this point, you know, the South is still, you know, like apartheid South Africa at this point. I mean, that was, that was the comparison that Norman Jewison said for the American South of he compared it to the apartheid in South Africa. That's that's how he looked at it. Yeah, well, it's absolutely an apt comparison, and 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 I I think anyone who doesn't believe that should just read some history. I mean, and um, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a film that sort of needed to be made, isn't it? I mean, it's it's a shame that like sometimes the most successful films in terms of getting across um, uh social points in hollywood history are sort of these kind of absurdly specific parables where it's like yeah. we're going to take this little podunk town and we're going to put into it this really like ace what is he like a is he an fbi agent what i know yeah, he's he's, uh, he's a philadelphia police detective and he's like the right. best homicide detective that they have right right so he's like super smart sophisticated guy ends up in this podunk and he's like oh clash of cultures and it's like you know what really the film that we really should get is what the racism that he experiences in philadelphia um but you know hollywood has to tell it in this kind of like the most kind of uh (laughs) black and white way the most extreme way um so um so that's you know that's just a bit of you know it's just a shame sometimes that it has to happen it doesn't change the fact that this is a really really excellent film it's a good murder mystery as well right right yeah although I when was, you do I find mean, out when you do find out who it is it's like oh yeah it's totally that guy yeah i know but i was like but also i was thinking to myself like oh yeah i could see that but then i was still kind of invested to see where the investigation was going and all these like little surprises and stuff and you know the whole bit when he's like the guy's left-handed isn't he yeah yeah of course what has that got to do with anything well, he's innocent. And just that whole, the way that those scenes play out is very good. And it just kind of builds the tension between Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger's character, especially when 
you know, he's forced to keep the guy around and try and keep him alive just because, you know, he's the only person qualified to actually solve this crime. Yeah, no, it's um yeah, it, it is a fun it is a fun mystery. I think in, in less deft hands it could end up being almost like a TV movie, but it is a really yeah. good uh, murder mystery. Also a great soundtrack. Not just the theme song, but also that song The Foul Owl on the Prowl. I love that mm. song. Yeah, that's a good um, song. Also, it was edited by a future filmmaker or future director, Hal Ashby, who went off who went on to have a very illustrious career as a director in the 70s. Of course, he's one of your big favorites. Yeah. Um, um I I remember I showed this in my film school in Denmark. Um we had like a weekend where we watched this do the right thing and then Fruitvale station, so we were just kind of getting in all our sort of racial movies. Right. Yeah, and in a sort <laughs> Today, of day we're doing in a sort of primarily white uh, <laughs> school. Oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, then. Uh, but when it there's that scene in the greenhouse where the white guy slaps um, Sidney Poitier, and then yeah, Sidney like Poitier's the character, patriarch. yeah, slaps him back. And I sort of talked about how that scene in many ways was kind of important, but then like someone came up to me at the end of the screening, Danish guy came up to me, was like, I don't get it. What, 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 what is that? Why did you say that scene was important? Well, read a, read a, read a book about about the American South and you'll see why a black man hitting a white man was, I mean, and that scene is that's that talk about editing and how, well, the job Hal Ashby does there yeah. is really good. That jump cut from the slap to Rod Steiger's face is is sublime. Well, that's um, a great surprised acting from Rod Steiger, who's like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's just like the way his the sort of nuances that he puts into it is really really good. Yeah, but I mean, that was a yeah, scene. I mean, that's that... that's the thing about that's the thing about the sixties. You know, it's um as I said before, you know, it's challenging all the um. All the tropes and in and in major you know blockbuster well blockbuster but in major popular movies yeah um and um you know this is the era of finally some serious progress on on civil rights of course nowhere near enough but um it is um yeah it's it's uh it's very representative it's good to have it on there what's uh should i go next what is it yeah you're number, number eight you're now? number eight um so from uh from the Lion in Winter, from the theatrical to the frivolous, uh, I'm going to go with John Sturgis's, again, back to 1963, uh, The Great Escape, because I love The Great Escape. and Yeah, um, I love it too. It didn't quite make I'm my list. I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm just, it is a fun d- romp. I had to, no, this decade is the era of the World War II romp. It takes World War II <laughs> and it says... You know what World War II was? It was a lot of fun with a lot of guys having a great time getting on adventures instead of just like killing Nazis. Conflict. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it wasn't, don't worry, it wasn't like an apocalyptic conflict where 55 million people died. It was just a playground for Gregory Peck and people like that. So I thought, well, like you, you know, I could put Guns and Navarone on there. I could put the Dirty Dozen on there. I could put the Longest Day on there. Where Eagles Dare. But I decided to uh, go with The Great Escape because The Great Escape has so many of the... Um, Elements that are, are, are elements of great 1960s war movies, like a big ensemble cast, um, you know, fun kind of cinema scope, Technicolor, a great, a great theme music by it's so good. Yeah, is it Elmer Bernstein? I think it is. I think it is Elmer Bernstein. Yeah, 
and um i mean it's just it's just t- terrific fun it's like because they're on the prison camps it just feels like they're a big boarding school and, and then of course people end up getting killed and that's terrible boarding but, school with guns <laughs> right 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 but um it's it you know it has um it, you know, it has also got genuine pathos and genuine kind of heart in it. Um, that's usually, you know, it is a film of kind of two halves. Um, there's like the fun bit at the beginning where they're all trying to escape and then, you know, shit gets real. Um, but there's also two halves in terms of a cast. You've got your kind of like square jawed American actors like James Garner and Steve McQueen. And then you've got like your more theatrical British ones like James Donald and um, Richard Attenborough and Gordon Jackson. And, and of course, Donald Pleasance, who's, yeah. who's so good in this. Um and um, yeah, and they're just like fucking foiling the Germans and getting up to no good and and getting caught and executed and the. But um, it's um, uh, I just you know it's it's a childhood favorite. I think it it very much kind of is of its time, and I just think it's impossible not to sit down and watch that and enjoy it. And 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 it is one of those of all those films. I think it's the one that has the most kind of hold on certainly in Britain on people's memory now i don't think i don't think there's any other movie you know of the type that i just mentioned from the 60s you know that has that same kind of purchase with um the british film going public or the or the tv watching part is that the, it's it's like yeah. the classic boxing day movie isn't it yeah my friend one of my friends from film school uh, thomas he um he always usually watches this film at christmas because i feel like he, he he told me like it always got played at cr- around christmas time yeah no it's exactly it, it, it totally absolutely um so um so yeah uh wonderful stuff and um i am um, i actually just want to go and like put it on right now but um there's not really much else to say about it's it. been a very long time since i've seen that movie it's been a horrendously long time yeah I, it's not really much to say about it except that one of the cast members of course lived on our street growing up that is true that is true Bobby desmond um anyway what's at your number what are we eight yeah, my number eight is a another Western, and it is Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh, gosh. I'm so glad you put Sergio Leone on here, because I totally fucked up and didn't put him on my list. But I had him last time. Didn't I have Fistful of Dynamite had, in the 70s? You had uh, Duck Sucker, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. So, okay, so Once Upon a Time in the West. I mean, that's a good film. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, for me, that was like... It doesn't have Warren Oates in it, though. It doesn't so. have Warren Oates. It, so sure. my, my 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 yeah it, it, the the war and oats streak ends here um but it does have a great cast you got claudio uh claudia cardinelli uh cardinelli sorry if i butchered her name Cardinale. uh jason robards charles bronson henry fonda in a surprise villain role like the first time i watched this movie and that scene and you know when the family gets massacred and then henry fonda shoots the child i was just sort of like did henry fonda just shoot a child yeah i think was a lot of people thought that at the time what's the guy is it gabrielli Ferzetti, the one who plays the the railroad baron who's who's uh disabled yeah mr choo-choo uh i can quickly because he's really up. good in it too yeah i mean it's a it's great, a great it's a cast. yeah um, robots is, is splendid in this yeah like while i i mean you know, Wild Bunch was like a love. I mean, you know, I feel like that was a sort of romantic film that was kind of a love of the West. But I think this film is a definite love of the West because you could just well, it's feel... a love of the Western. It's yeah, a love the of the genre. It's a love yeah, of the they genre. Go, 
they go to they go to Monument Valley. I mean, they do a pilgrimage to John Ford's uh, location. You know, they do all these references to all these other westerns, um, and um, I mean, for me, I think it's almost too studied. Like, I think that's my criticism of it. I think one of the reasons I prefer the good, the bad, and the ugly, or Duck You Sucker, is this film. It's it's like the it 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 it's aware of itself and of its own prestige in a way that's sometimes not always a little bit like um you know it's sort of winking know, to the it, audience a bit too much or just like posturing a bit too much you know it's like puts you at a bit of a distance I will just say I love it like I'm not saying I don't I mean this film is is basically one of my favorite movies of all time probably it would definitely be in my yeah. as you always are fond of saying my top 50 or whatever but like my but it it is um you know it is it is curious that i love uh, got, uh the good the bad and the ugly more than i love this film but then i think about certain sequences like i think the the train station at the beginning of of this mm. is maybe the most one of the most perfect sequences in any western yeah but it's also just like the sound design is so great you don't yeah. even need ennio morricone writing music for it i i remember um a very long time ago well a few years ago i was listening to the projection booth talking about once upon a time in the west and i think they were talking about the music and i think ennio morricone had written some music that was going to be played in the beginning, but I think they decided to not have any music and just have the different sound effects, like the windmill, yeah. the dripping of the water, the fly, like all these little things to sort of build up tension. And I love the fact that that they had this idea that it was going to be Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Eli Wallach playing the three guys that get shot at the beginning of the yeah, movie. I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they didn't do that. Which I think really would have taken a lot of people out of the movie because... Well, this is the thing. I think there's a little bit too much of that in the film at other sequences. I think it's great that it's Woody Strode and Jack Elam and that other guy. Um, and, Who also um, died mysteriously as well. He passed away around yeah. the same time after yeah. he stopped filming... Oh, after he was done filming the movie. Yeah, it's really weird that... But yeah, no, it's, I, I don't want to say anything else against this film. It's, it's, I, I, it is just full of excellence, um, full of just brilliant set pieces there's some great like um very classic kind of italian like oh let's look at the lady kind yeah, of camera yeah, yeah. camera shots going on but and the and the music is lush and sublime it's and one of my favorite morricone scores the whole yeah. music is fantastic yeah no it is um so you know highly highly commended um not on my list though um i tell you what though um we're going to go back to the theme of race with my next uh, entry because that is um, the film Uptight. Have you seen it? That's the Jules uh, Dassin film, isn't it? Yes, Jules Dassin from 1968. So yeah, you had uh, recommended to me. Well, you did a Holmes Movies Recommends episode on it. Right. Good. Well remembered. I won't go into too much detail then. But yeah, Jules Dassin directs the film in 1968. So shortly after um, Martin Luther King is murdered, um, he makes this... Um, remake of john ford's the informer set in um i can't remember where it's set i'm not 100 percent sure it's uh made clear but um where essentially uh um you know in place of irish 
freedom fighters you have you know black militants and one informs on the other and he's killed by police and so on and then there's this sort of manhunt to find out who did the you know who tattled essentially and um it's just a really good like portrait of the anger and the frustration around the the 1960s and around the killing of mlk and like the different approach to martin luther king's non-violent uh advocacy um and there's a sequence in this film where the main character you know who's in the sort of um you know victor mcclaglan role uh he um you know he sort of lays lays it down you know explains (laughs) race and racism uh for um you know for for like these hopelessly idiotic white people and um it's just a very very um moving uh, film on the whole but but that bit has real humor in it as well which i've always really um really appreciated so um yeah it's just um it's 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 a phenomenally um good movie um and um and got some you know it's got some really really great performances in it including by ruby d um who's um just wonderful and everything she's she touches um um and it's not very uh well known so i think um i think people should should check it out um and uh of course it's got brilliant soundtrack too so i think it's definitely um, available on apple tv if you're in the uk i think you can definitely buy or rent it yeah also i think very much kind of a an early black exploitation yeah. Um, oh, it's not black exploitation per se, but it, you know, it's it's got certain elements there. So um, yeah. definitely something to to hang your hat on uh, if that's your uh, if that's a genre that you're into. Anyway, uh, what have you got next? So uh, my number, what did I get up to? My number seven is uh, Jack Clayton's The Innocents. Oh, you see, I was going to put that on my list, and I didn't, it didn't make it. So um, I'm really glad it's on yours. This is just one of my favorite horror movies of all time that I really enjoyed watching with you because you and me were just shitting ourselves the entire time. Like, jump. it was the we only time. It. What? We watched it for the first time together, right? Yeah. Yeah, we watched it for the first time together. It was that time when we sort of thought, like, let's try and watch horror films together and see what happens. And um, you had bought, like, the BFI DVD which I think was like, I think I'm glad that you have that because I really, I don't know how readily available this film is. I would love it if Criterion, uh, the Criterion Collection did like a Blu-ray of this or something. Yeah. I don't know if they do. I might be wrong. I'm sure if anyone listens to this, they, they must might. be available on DVD. Anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, such a scary movie. Yeah, I mean, I was <laughs> so well done. I was sort of torn between putting this on here or putting Robert Wise's The Haunting on here because both oh, those... this films, is better. This is better. Yeah, I mean, I like The Haunting a lot. It does use, like, sound effects and music and cinematography to really create terror. But in, I think in this one, it's just a, on another higher level. It's It's like there's it's 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 also kind of sexy as well in a weird sort of way but also yeah, in a very in a fucked up way yeah yeah in a really fucked up way but it's also it's very like it mysterious and i love how it never really explains anything and it leaves 
it very much leaves like everything to the viewer's interpretation. And Deborah Kerr's Deborah Kerr's performance in the film is phenomenal. I yeah, think she should have been. You know, when we talk about like, oh, Tony Collette should have been nominated for Hereditary, and like, oh, uh, Lupita Nyong'o should have been nominated for Us. Fucking Deborah Kerr should have been nominated for the for for The Innocence because her performance in this is amazing. Like she yeah. carries yeah, that whole film. Absolutely, it's it's absolutely like the ones you just mentioned. It's one of these like, it's a film that wouldn't work without that central performance. Um, yeah, she's like you see her losing her mind and going crazy in real time. Like this, the moment she steps into that house, that it's like it. You can just tell that things are just chipping away at her psyche. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. It's um oh I mean it, it is it is just a <laughs> yeah it's 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 really special. Um the ghosts in this film when they appear or they don't appear, it's like very, very creepy. I also think that you could not do this film in color. It has to be black and white. The black and white cinematography is what makes this film work. Yeah, uh, make it makes it possible. Um and it's one of those ones where you you just like you need someone's a cinematographer who understands black and white photography, and and I don't think there are many films from the sixties that that have a better sense of the the possibilities of black and white cinematography than this film. Um, it's just, um, oh, it's it's be- it's beautifully scary. Yeah, it was Jack Cardiff who did the cinematography on this, wasn't it? Was it? No, I don't think so. No, it might it might have been Freddie Francis, one of the other one of those guys. I don't think it was Cardiff. I, I'm, I mean, if it was, I, it's no, but it's not. It's not Cardiff style. Oh, it's Freddie Francis. It was Freddie Francis. Yeah, yeah. Um, who went off to? Yeah. Uh, uh, he directed a bunch of films. He directed films for Hammer Horror, and he also directed for their rival, uh, Amicus. Ooh. Um, and well, uh, Truman Truman Capote. We should know. We should let it be known that Truman Capote did write a draft for this film. Yeah, because it's based on um, the, turn the, 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 the Turn of the Turn the of the Shrew, not the Shrew. Sorry, that's a Shakespeare. Uh, well, the Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, Taming of the, <laughs> taming of the Screw. Um, turn, turn of the Screw, uh, which I think did also have another adaptation, which came out of the in twenty twenty and was not popular at all. Well, let's yeah, the less said about that. Um, my number. Six is that where we are now? Is yeah. um, I'm finally doing one of the French New Wave films, and that's uh, Cleo from Five to Seven by Agnes Varda, um, which is a really good movie. Um, and I wanted to pick this because there are a ton of films like there's Contempt, there's Breathless, there's Band Apart, there's Alphaville by Goddard and by Truffaut, and all these other guys who's just like we know about those already. Um, they're all good. I just I saw that part of the reason I picked this one, it's from 1962, um, is that I saw it kind of recently and I just, just really loved it. And I really like the fact that, f- you know, French New Wave is a genre that has quite a male gaze. This is a, a female director. Um, and you can really tell uh, it's a film about a um, a woman who thinks she's might be dying um yeah and is waiting for the results of a biopsy and uh it's done in real time and she's just in paris and so it's a great paris film um and um and it's you know just like 
full of great little vignettes, great characters, uh, a lot of like existentialism, um, a lot of Christ sort of criticism of the materialistic sort of egotistic culture of the 60s that feels like it's just got even more absurd since then um and um yeah it's uh uh it's got you know brilliant performances kareen marshall um as cleo um is obviously the main one um and so so yeah no, i mean it's I, I don't really want to say too much more about it other than it's um I, I think needs to be remembered alongside the ones you know the more famous names like breathless and so on um because um because it's got just as much to say as any of those as any of those movies yeah. um but I'm, I'm happy to leave it there because um yeah uh we are we don't want to run too long what's your uh what's your number next what, what's your next number number six uh, my number six is also a film from France, and it's the uh, 1967 film Jacques Tati's Playtime. Oh, I've not seen Playtime. It's, I love Jacques Tati, though. It was my first Jacques Tati film, and I have to say, I was just completely mesmerized by the whole film. It's just brilliant. It's on the Criterion channel, and it's also part of this big box set that you can watch all of the uh monsieur hulot films and of course jack titty plays uh monsieur monsieur hello this kind of jack cousteau meet no not jack cousteau inspector clouseau meets um mr bean kind of character and i think rowan atkinson did take a little bit of inspiration of jack titty's hulot for uh mr bean and um you know the whole like physical comedy and yeah and, no like, i totally see what you mean yeah that whole thing about you you see the joke happening in widescreen kind of kind of thing and this was a film this was like a really big production for him and he actually went broke when the, after this film was made it was like it was made over a few years it was shot on 70 mil and in that time there weren't that many th- cinemas that had projectors that could play 70 millimeter so yeah it was a he was a big loss and they the whole the, the big sets that he built for the movie people called it tativil it's it's this very interest it's all set over one day and it mixes in a little bit of like the modern and the old it, it there's a little bit of 1930s slapstick humor in there like there's like this scene there's like this big long scene which takes up like the last little part of the film it's like this restaurant's opening night. Everything goes wrong. And it's so funny. Like everything is just paid off so well. And it's just, it, it's, it's like, it's like, like Groucho Marx would love that scene. He would just say, I tip my hat to you, Tati, or say something witty or something like that. And just, I, I just. I love, it, I love that you're like putting these words in Groucho Marx's mouth that he never said and then not. I tip my hat to you, Tati. <laughs> he would have said something very witty, but no, anyway. it, just ca- it captures this kind of like absurd and mundane look at modern life and this whole thing about we have with technology and how technology was kind of controlling us. And he was sort of making a point of that in the film, and I thought it was very interesting. And yeah, it's 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 a wonderful film. It's very funny, and there's not a lot of dialogue in the film. It's a film that's really. No based around sounds and music and visuals and the the cinematography is amazing like it's just the the way that he just choreographs and there's a lot of people in this movie there's a lot of extras there's a lot of moving parts and i think the way that he kind of 
does all that is very good. I think, you know, people who want to make films with like big scenes and things like that, watch films like Playtime and you can get a good inspiration for it. Mm. Oh, it sounds great. Um, I'm de- it's definitely, it's been on my list for a long time. Well, my number five now is um, another Western. Um, the only Western on my list, I tried to keep it um, limited and it's uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, I ummed and I odd about whether to do The Wild Bunch, but I decided in the end to do Butch and Sundance because it is such a delight. And it is a very, I think what people forget about Butch and Sundance because they remember all the fun and the frolics and they remember the the two leads and they remember the raindrops keep falling on my head sequence by, of course, the late Burt Bacharach. They forget that it's a really good movie that is directed extremely skillfully by George Roy Hill that is shot gorgeously by Conrad Hall. Um, and that is actually a very sad film at heart. It's a very and sad has film. just as much melancholy in it as Peckinpah, but without the um, explosiveness. And so, you know, this film is kind of happy-go-lucky in some ways, but the, you know, the the laughs and the sort of thrills and spills are laced with this very real sense that time is running out for the main characters and. Um, I I just I think it's got such heart and and, and yeah and the, you know Robert Redford and Paul Newman are stunning and beautiful in this um and it is kind of amazing that they really didn't do that many movies together and yet they're so films. I know they're, they're just remembered as this iconic duo and as they should be that they have such great rapport yeah. um and it is genuinely very well written I mean this is the the William the Goldman. cool thing about it is, you know, Westerns you don't normally associate with like crackling dialogue, but this, this you really do get, uh, you really do get that from uh, from Butch and Sundance. Um, and you, you know, you, you get all the fun stuff, you get the shoot jacks and you get the um, the chase sequences and the horses and everything else. Um, and uh, a lot of really good sort of inventive use of um, montage and of yeah. uh, music and um uh, cost the costumes are great. Like it's just, it's just, it's one of those films that every detail is perfect. Every yeah. choice made is perfect. Every yeah. joke lands perfectly. It's a like sometimes when you watch the these kind of films where things just work, things are just the way they should be. It's just such a like pleasant sensation, you know. It's all on the page, you know. William Goldman's screenplay. It's just amazing. Well, it is. It's it's it is on the page, but it's also you know it's also in the cinematography. It's also yeah. in the editing. It's also in the performance. You know, everything just comes together. Um, it's also Great. got a um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre reference, um, of course, um, which is kind of interesting um, in the brands that are on the uh, the mules. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, speaking of uh, beloved character actors, um, you know, th- this is another another Strother Martin. <laughs> entry um who's one morons. of our favorites i got morons on my team <laughs> uh yeah he's 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 wonderful and it's great to see him in this film um but yeah so i mean it needs no introduction i'm sure most of you out there have seen it if you haven't like get real and watch this movie uh you yeah. will love it i don't care who you are you'll love this film um right let's go so my number, my number five is dr strange love or how i oh. Or how I learned to stop worrying and love the Bob, which I think is generally one of my favorite Kubrick films of all time. It's oh, it's so good. 
It's so funny. I remember what I remember, like I watched it with in film school, like I, I with friends, and we were just laughing so much. Like it, I just it reminded me like well the first time i watched it as a teenager i enjoyed it but i didn't get the humor of it but as as i got older i understood like this is a hilarious film and like george c scott who's just playing it straight is so funny in this movie oh, yeah. but but no one i mean and sterling hayden as well and and also uh slim pickens but no one is as funny as peter sellers in that film he's playing three characters and each of them are hilarious yes um it is it's so i mean i agree with you i i feel like i it took me a while to really sort of get the film um i wasn't used to what this film was sort of trying to do i mean i was used to watching cold war thrillers and i was used to watching comedies and sort of pushing the two together it felt the first time I watched it, I was sort of like, I was, I was, I think I was too aware that I needed to enjoy this film and needed to sort yeah. of quote unquote get it. Um, but you do get it as you, especially as you become more familiar with like the political history of the 60s and so on. And um, it's just, uh, very, yeah, is is very, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's like a roller coaster ride yeah. all the way through. And it's so, and it is heartbreaking as well. It's and it, I think the thing yeah. that, you you lose from our vantage point is the re very real fear that people lived with in the 60s of you know nuclear annihilation which sort of took its uh form in the you know shape of the cuban missile crisis and everything else and it's like how like watching this film you're just like yeah the world is controlled by some very very foolish men with an awful lot of power who could make the wrong decision at any point and blow us all to hell and that's just a, a reality we've lived with ever since yeah um and it takes such delight in sort of taking apart that power structure um it's um yeah it's, it's phenomenal and um and yeah kubrick's such a good like helmsman for that um like, yeah like i mean most of the movie takes place in like one room the war room is pretty much the in you know the entire movie but he he still manages to keep that film entertaining and i think that's down to the cast i mean george c scott didn't even think it would work as a film he, he was just thinking that this is a drama and he didn't think that he was he didn't quite get what kubrick was saying like this is a comedy and it and it, it took until he was in a cinema watching the film and he was like oh now i get it yeah yeah, and also by the way, the the production design is by Ken Adam, who also did a rather Bond movies. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So that sort yeah. of that that look is very, you know, that that '60s look. A lot of the time, that that look that we all have in our heads of like what a secret war room or a base or whatever looks like, it's it's just Ken Adam's design. Yeah. Um, but this thing is a big new coffee table book out, which you can buy with all his designs and stuff in it. Oh, anyway, um, yeah, Mo, oh, good choice. Um, yeah. My number five. Wait, you're at my four. number four. Yeah. is actually three movies in one. Um, but uh, it is uh, Sergei Bondarchuk's War and Peace. It's four movies in one. It's actually in four parts, but each part makes a one big film, and um, so we count it as that. And it is a no. When I say big film, it's a fucking massive film. Uh, this is. They use like basically half the Red Army for these incredible battle sequences. 
Um, they had ballroom scenes with you know hundreds of people. The sets are insanely beautiful. The the like set pieces are great. The way they film the Russian landscape, it is a huge like monument to 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 Tolstoy and to this novel and to like the Russia. Uh, the Soviet Union. Um, it is. It, it's so many things, um, and it's. Um, it, it. It's just a brilliant piece of filmmaking because it's so big. You don't expect it to be so good, and yet it is. Um, you know, you think, oh, it's going to be like over the top, like epic. It's going to be like Gone with the Wind on steroids, and it's like, no, it's actually all the way through. It's really well done, well acted, um, well told, and and you know, lushly shot and um, and so on. Movie um, that makes just such excellent use of the source material. As far as I know, I've never fucking read War and Peace, but like you know, to condense a nineteenth-century novel into this. Yeah. Uh, like is it 90 who even knows and it's, it's a big no fucking idea. novel put into a film it's not always easy to do anyway they Sergei Bondarchuk does it really well the battle sequences are kind of on another planet like normally you think of like what's a big battle sequence in a film you know Saving Private Ryan uses you know a lot of modern technology to make that possible you look at Pelennor fields or whatever in Lord of the Rings again is the same thing. It's like here it is just like they staged a fucking Napoleonic battle using Red Army soldiers and just had them run at each. And it's like it's just everything you see is there. It's like it, it, it is jaw dropping. Um, and um, and I don't know how they did it. Like I don't know. How, I just physically don't know how anyone could make this film without having a massive heart attack because it's just like there are so many moving parts, and it does feel like. Like having that, there is a sort of almost like a state behind it. You know, <laughs> the yeah. whole country is making this movie. Um, so yeah, it's um, but 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 it's not just those scenes, as I say. The, the intimate scenes, the peace bit, uh, as opposed to the war, is done uh, really sensitively and 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 with great um, beauty as well. Um, and so um, so yeah, I'm a. Uh, I'm a huge fan of War and Peace, and I advocate that all of you go on the Criterion channel and watch all four parts, yeah. um, because you will not be disappointed. And watch it on a big screen, um, because you want you need that too. Uh, two things: is he the same director who did Waterloo? Yes, which is shit. But um... yeah. again, <laughs> but, um... Rod Steiger showing a bit of scenery in that film. Yeah, and but ignore that. Ignore the Waterloo adaptation. Uh, and the other thing, do you? I feel like, do you think that film could be a bit of an inspiration for Ridley Scott's Napoleon? Well, I hope so. Um, but I mean, knowing I don't how know. Ridley Scott does battle scenes, yeah, I hope so. I hope that Ridley Scott's Napoleon has lots of that sort of thing in it. I'm obviously as nervous as anyone else. We've never, I mean, there's only really one big Napoleon film, and that's Abel Gantz's film, and that is a bit of a like mouthful. Um, and quite over the top, um, and that was from 1927. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We will see. Um, what about you? What's what's next? So my my number four is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Oh, you know what? We have our first overlap. I also have Psycho on my list. Oh, and I also have it at number three. So let's talk about Psycho. Let's talk about Psycho. Um so brave to kill off your main character 30 minutes into your film yeah yeah there's that of course there's the fact that um he made this big you know shift from doing these huge 1950s um 
Technicolor films with an all-star cast and, you know, huge productions and locations and so on to doing a tiny black and white film with his like TV crew and a, and a less well-known cast. Um, and it's fucking great. Like it's just one of the most iconic films of all time that right. Along and, and... with peeping Tom, Michael Powell's film inspired what was to come in the seventies and the, in parts of the sixties you know, with the horror genre. And I think a lot of people think, oh, Psycho is just like build up to the shower scene and then it's aftermath. It's like, no, 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 no. Like the whole film. Think about the sequence where she gets stopped by the cop. That is such a suspenseful bit. The the whole film is this like tense, um, creepy, you know, ride where you don't know what's going to happen. And the only bit that kind of doesn't land is the end where they like um, mansplain like mental illness. Or whatever yeah that's the only part of the movie where you could feel like i mean i get it you don't need to like explain everything we've just watched it, it's it's a little bit corny but the the rest of the film is ah oh, it's <laughs> it is such a masterpiece it is yeah. it's like hitchcock just even in old age just like flexing his muscles and doing um yeah this is kind of his last great film isn't it yeah he did the birds and then torn curtain topaz and then frenzy yeah, I mean, apart from Frenzy and maybe The Birds, he didn't make that many other... Well- the Birds is not a great film. Sorry. Well-known, but I wouldn't say... I mean, no. I don't know. I mean, it's Frenzy's fun. pretty good. I would say Frenzy and like Psycho are his two last great films. Yeah, but Psycho is like yeah. next level. Like It is... Um, oh, it's 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 so, so good. And the music, Bernard Herman's music, again, apart from the stabby, stabby, psyche, psycho shower bit, like the 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 the, the normal, the sort of regular yeah, yeah, scores yeah. Um, is terrific. And so many good character actors in this, like John uh, McIntyre and... Um, Martin Balsman. Balsam. Martin Balsam. Um, you've got your Vera... What's her name? Vera Miles is really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that she shows up in Psycho 2. I think that was really cool. Oh, I haven't seen. I haven't seen Psycho Two because I'm not it's a nerd. Very underrated. I, well, I am thought... a nerd, but I'm not that kind of a nerd. <laughs> I liked it. I thought it was good. Okay. Well, anyway, Psycho probably doesn't need that much more of an introduction from us, but it sure is a good film. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, because that's my number three. What's it? Your number three? My number three is The Dirty Dozen. Oh, you did put the dirty dozen on there. Yeah, Very nice. You, and at number three as well. That's a hell of a yeah, place. I, did. To it. I I just absolutely love this movie. <laughs> just I, I, I also love this film. I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah, you got your Lee Marvin, you got your Robert Ryan, you got your Ernest Borgnine, Charles Bronson, Telly Savalas. Got all the great character actors in this movie, and it is an Look absolute- John Cassavetes. John Cassavetes, who was Oscar nominated, you got Jim Brown, Donald Sutherland. It's just you throw a rock at a it's tree, bad, as they say. Yeah. What? I say the, the, the kids these days would say it's stacked. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, exactly. But- I mean, you throw a rock at a tree, you're just going to get every single character actor that was making movies in the 1960s. And I like the fact that it spends a lot of time like building up the training and the character, the relationships that Lee Marvin has with the prisoners before it gets to the mission. So when it gets to the mission, when they all start sort of popping off one one at a time, you kind of feel for them because you've spent a lot of time kind of getting yeah. to know them, even though yeah, some in of a them weird are... in a weird way, it sort of 
um it foregrounds or it, or it predicts like band of brothers and stuff like that like it's yeah. sort of but even though this is not a band of brothers it's a band of absolute psychopaths but it's yeah, really exactly. um yeah um really fun um the way that again it's like they take the second world war and they turn it into a playground like in the beginning of the film there isn't there are no stakes really because they're in england and so they get yeah. just get into like fist fights with you know the the snooty guys down the road or whatever um and then the, the stakes are more real when they go and attack the germans but again it's like because it's this like made up world war ii where this these events happen that are just completely nonsensical it still somehow feels like it's all fake uh or not yeah. fake but somehow just feels like it's a big game um yeah and all um, the generals hiding out in one chateau the day before d-day <laughs> right i'm sure that if this had really happened the war would have gone quite differently but um no uh, that, that it's just it it is absurd how you get these like um men on a mission movies that become so popular in the 60s you know this war that's in living memory and all of a sudden we're making these like boy scout <laughs> movies about it yeah. um and um but it is a lot of fun i mean lee marvin is the, in this is so perfect yeah he's great i mean john wayne nearly played the lee marvin character which would have been that would not have been good that would not no, have been good it, it wouldn't have been good no i couldn't see john wayne saying but suppose he gets killed before he gets to the top of the chateau. I couldn't see him say that line in the way that Lee Marvin says it in no. the movie. Marvin, you've got to have Marvin's kind of, uh, you've got to have Lee Marvin's sort of sensuality to, to really play yeah. that part. Um, we're running out of time. So um, I guess we should quickly run through our last films. Um, sure. My, num my number two is The Apartment. Ooh, um, Which... Um, you know, is um, directed by Billy Wilder, written by Billy Wilder, starring Jack Lemmon and Fred McMurray and Shirley MacLaine. Um, it is a wonderful romantic comedy. It is a very unexpectedly sweet film about a man who rents out his apartment so his colleague can use it to, you know, shag um, and conduct their uh, extramarital affairs. Um, I feel like it has just so much... Um, sweetness and and heart and light in this film and 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 um and it's like a it's 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 a classic sort of billy wilder doing ernst lubitsch from the 30s in the 1960s yeah. um sure. and um yeah it's just it's an intensely lovely movie and um yeah. i don't want to have i don't want to say too much more you've probably seen it if you haven't mm -hmm. again you know do yourself a favor um and watch this movie but um yeah as I say, we're running out of time. What's your What's your number two? My number two is Mike Nichols' uh, first film as a director of film was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, which I've not seen, funnily enough. Just a fantastic film. You know, just Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, George, I think it's George Sanders. No, not George Sanders. Uh, what's his name? Fuck. No, it's uh, George Siegel and Sandy Dennis. Just those four actors in the film having the most uncomfortable night of their lives <laughs> with drink and just the the spitefulness of the marriage of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton's characters kind of just infecting the, this young couple in this sort of... I think it, ta it takes place in like this this campus and this university and there's just I think it's, it's set like where i live basically pretty much yeah i mean it's just 
the dialogue is so good and the acting is great. I, I kind of compare it a little bit to American Beauty because of the theatricality and all the different themes. Yeah, the except American Beauty is no, nowhere near as good. Nowhere think. near as good, but they, bo- they do share these kind of themes about, you know, you know, life hasn't gone the way you should and things like that. It's an amazing film, great direction. The performances are amazing. It's exciting. It's thrilling. You don't know where it's going to go. And it's a it's a brilliant film. And Mike Nichols, you know, went from theater and went to movies and he directed the hell out of it. And he did The Graduate years later. Yeah, which is all, could be in anyone's um, yeah. 60s top 10, I guess. Okay, fine. I'll do my number one, which is Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> and like, I rest my case. Yeah. Um, no, okay, quickly, like, Lawrence Arabia is, talk about a big film done well, like, Warren, this is a humongous production in the deserts of Jordan, bringing a larger-than-life mythic figure to to, to life, um, the, bringing the First World War in the desert to life, um, the, the, the music, the sweep, the scope, the, the way it uses location, the, 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 the acting... Omar Sharif, Anthony Quinn, Alec Guinness, and of course, Peter O'Toole um, in his screen debut. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it is, it's not without its problems. I mean, it's got a lot of people in brown face. It's a film about colonialism, I guess, uh, that doesn't, you know, doesn't quite interrogate maybe enough, but maybe it does. I mean, yeah. but it's, you could certainly debate that, but like, it is just, in terms of a piece of filmmaking, a piece of storytelling, a, a, a technical achievement, and and a like a profound statement about people. I mean, you you don't get much better than um, yeah. than Lawrence Arabia, and a, and a statement about like what celebrity is, what heroism is. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very very um, worthy of it of top spot. But we're about to run out of time. So, what's your number one? So my number one is George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Ah. I think about that movie. Lawrence of Arabia, Night of the Living Dead. I like it. Good contrast. But I feel like I don't think any film that really captures the the what the 60s were at that point in 1968 when the film came out than George A. Romero did. I think he captures the 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 all all that was going on at that time and just makes like this very with zombies. With zombies but you know he's making a social political movie with zombies in it and that's what he that was his stock and trade that all those zombies movies had something to say about society like this film had something to say about racism you make that perfectly clear when you have the main actor the hero of the movie is a black character and that was really rare at that time and it was they didn't cast him in that film because he was black he was just a, the best actor for that part but it just became so much more after that yeah um i I'm re- i really do want to see it i must say yeah but there's so many there's so much imagery in that film that is so reminiscent of like 1960s stock news footage it's like it's almost like it's happening i mean come on we lived through a fucking pandemic you could watch that film and be like oh this is what we're going through right now like George A. Romero was just so tapped into real fears and using that into his movies. And also it's a very inspirational film for low budget filmmakers. Like that film was just, mm. just getting a bunch of people together, friends and things like that and making a movie. Yeah, it's sort of the opposite of Lawrence of Arabia, which is a like huge studio, massive budget, big names. You know, in the seventies you get these, you know, this moment where 
a kind of independent cinema or an independent cinema mindset yeah. enters the mainstream and sits alongside big, you know, the influences big projects like The Godfather. And then in this, you know, but in the 60s, it's still, you know, separate a little bit. So, yeah, not a very profound point. We should end it there because I have a meeting sure. right now um, that I have to go to. So um, we're going to kind of have to go and people are going to have to find us on social media and on Letterboxd yes. and all the rest of it. And they're just going to have to not have the usual post amble. I'm sorry we had to rush the end there, but that's because we talked too much at the beginning and we don't do good time management. So, yeah. That's true. We get too carried away. But yeah, thank you very much for listening. I will let Adam get off to his meeting and I will get off to bed because i got to get up to shoot a movie tomorrow. So, exactly. Uh, We've both got other things to do. You should be grateful we're doing this at all, you fuckers. Um, <laughs> all right. I will uh, I will see you soon. I'll see you in a few in a few days. I'll be in America with you soon. Uh, you will. All right. See you on the other side. Yeah. Bye. Of the Atlantic. Yes. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Bye.